Claire Hababu stepped off a plane in Iran with high hopes. She had come all the way from Uganda, chasing the promise of a new business opportunity, the chance of a lifetime to earn money for her husband and three children. But she soon realized that the people who promised her a job were not who she thought they were. They were traffickers. She was sitting in the airport when the Iranian police and media surrounded her. I asked him, do you want to see what I would have we done? Then the man said, don't you know that you have committed a very big crime in this country? The airport security had found drugs in Claire's bags. The penalty for this was imprisonment or even death. I'm Chris. And I'm Christy. We're two college students sharing the stories of overcomers around the globe who love God and love others. On today's episode, you'll hear Claire tell the story of how she became ensnared by human traffickers. But you'll also hear her testimony of how even as she faced incredible evil, God was good and faithful. And you'll hear about her work with Love Justice to save lives from human trafficking. This is about God's redemptive love. This is about one woman's cry in the dark. This is Two Coins. My name is Claire Habubu. I'm a born again Christian. Claire Hababu is 49 years old, a follower of Jesus, and the single mother of two boys and a girl. I've never met Claire personally, but I've had the privilege of hearing her story through an audio interview she had with a simple charity intern, Matthew Brake. You might hear his voice occasionally. In a photo of Claire on Simple Charity's website, her black curly hair and dark eyes contrast with her white shirt and the smile that spreads across her face. She grew up in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. I was once in such a situation and uh, I fell in big trouble, which almost lost my life. Claire's story begins one day during lunch hour when some strange foreigners approached her with a business proposition. They told her they needed her help to start a local business, and they wanted her to fly to China to visit the factories from which they were going to import their goods. So, uh, certain people saw me, and they told me that they have been watching me for a long time, and they see that I'm a born-again Christian, and they, they see that I'm a trustworthy woman. Claire felt conflicted. Was this God's providence opening up a door for her? I was so happy. I became so anxious. But then in my heart, I was struggling in my heart. How can it just come like this? But I think God was trying to tell me that you think good things just come like that and it's done. But I didn't get that message. So Claire made the choice to take the trip to China. Her husband at the time didn't bother to stop her. They told me that when you're traveling, you don't tell anyone because when you tell people things, sometimes they don't happen. So I kept it to myself. I said bye to my husband and my children. I just told them that I'm having a business trip. 
the strangers gave Claire very little information about what to expect. So, all this time when I met them there, they did not share with me uh, either about my travel, about my catering, about anything, and they didn't even show me my passport. As a tactic to avoid raising suspicion from other people, the traffickers delayed going to the airport in Uganda until the very last minute, and then they rushed Claire to the flight. Now, they said faster, faster. They drove very fast to the airport. Along the way, they told her that she was going to make a stop in Iran to get the visa for China. They handed her a notebook. These are the numbers you are going to call when you arrive, they said. And then they left Claire at the airport and drove away. Despite the confusion, Claire was still trusting that this was God's plan for her. Besides, I was a believer. I knew I was going with my God, so I knew nothing could happen to me. The night was thickening when Claire finally touched down in Iran. She tried calling the numbers given to her in the notebook multiple times. No response. So she decided to check in at the hotel they had specified. When she handed her passport over as a photo ID, she was surprised that the receptionist didn't hand it back. Eventually, Claire was able to get in touch with the original people by calling their Uganda numbers. They said, oh, you already there. I said, yes. They said, okay. You wait, uh, someone is coming to pick you. When the people arrived, the receptionist handed Claire's passport to them. She didn't know it then, but looking back now, Claire realizes that the receptionist had been working with the traffickers all along. I didn't know that time, that Mm. that's how it works. Mm. I didn't know that that time I was a slave. So, I followed them, we went, and they reached their home. They showed me a room where I would be staying, and I stayed there for a night. Then the next day, they told me that we are going to pick uh, another girl who is coming from South Africa, and you are going to be two, and you are going to the same destination. The traffickers took their small bags and gave them large suitcases instead. They told us, you are big people now. You have to have class when you're traveling. So they brought suitcases. They gave us that these are travel bags and you are going to look very elegant like travelers. Then they brought them to a taxi driver, another member of the trafficking ring. Can you imagine all this time we haven't held our passport and we don't know the reason why. And we are taking it like it is a normal thing. Maybe that's just part of being a first-time traveler, Claire thought. And so they arrived at the airport, and she found the gate for her flight to China, through the help of some other Ugandans who spoke her language. I remained calm, sitting, and comfortable, just uh, eager to board another plane to my destination. I eventually see a police lady coming towards me. Of course, we do not speak the same language. So she she signaled me and I couldn't understand why she's beckoning me. 
Then she came and held my hand and ordered me to follow her. And uh, I just followed her, not knowing why. The policewoman brought Claire back to security and demanded that her bags be brought off the plane. As they ransacked the bags, Claire saw strange things in her bag that she had no idea were there. As the situation quickly spiraled into a crisis, security officers came running, yelling rapidly into walkie-talkies, and journalists from prominent media outlets swarmed the group. Claire turned to one of them. I asked one of the journalists, because I saw BBC, CNN, uh, Al Jazeera, they were all around. I asked him, what is the matter? What have we done? Then the man said, don't you know that you have committed a very big crime in this country? You have been arrested with the drugs. And once you are arrested with the drugs, it was two grounds. You are sentenced based by hanging. The penalty for being arrested with drugs was death by hanging. I looked this up recently and a New York Times article from 2018 said that the majority of people who received death sentences in Iran had been convicted of drug-related crimes. Until recently, when Iran amended its laws, there were an estimated 5,000 people awaiting the death penalty in Iranian jails. I made a very sharp shout and I blew. I blew out. I, I couldn't know whether I, I existed or not. I don't know the world I went to. I passed out. I passed out. I couldn't know. But during that time, when I called my mother, my children, my husband, I shouted and I passed out. So when I was in that situation, I fainted and I realized when I when I came back like and my senses, I realized I was surrounded by people and I was now thinking, is it a dream? Am I alive? Is it a, a, a dream which is scary or what? I I denied it. I say, I said I think it is a dream. I can't imagine how frightening this must have all felt for Claire. I mean, she's in a foreign land with people who don't speak her language, condemned for a crime she never committed. And then this was all in such contrast to her expectation of finding a new job and business opportunity. That's why Claire's response is so convicting. Cornered by desperate circumstances, Claire clings to hope. Then something was telling me that this is reality. Then I started taking it like it is a reality. Okay, how do I go through it? Then I remembered that I have Jesus. Jesus, you said that you'll never leave me. 
alone, even if I pass through fire and mm. through the river, be with me. I called upon him. I said, strengthen me at this time because I know you are the only one who knows about me. I think Claire was remembering a passage in Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. It's that promise Claire held onto as she experienced terrible treatment from those who arrested her. They handled us like terrorists, like the, the things we have been seeing in movies. Mm. And they now came to pass on me because I was seeing such things on movies where they cover people's faces. The challenges we faced most was language barrier. Yeah. We couldn't talk about mm. what had happened to us. Mm. Nobody cared because there was a lot of racism. Nobody can give you even drinking water because mm. instead they, they mock you. They think you are not human. Mm. It was a lot of pain. Yeah. It was a lot of pain. He said, God, but you said that you made us in your image, in your mm. own image. Mm-hmm. And these people are supposed to be our brothers. Why mm-hmm. do they look at us like we are not human? Claire ended up staying in custody for roughly eight months before the day of her trial. On that day, she says, the only thing she understood was the name of her lawyer. She didn't know what arguments the lawyers are making. When they mentioned her name, it was in broken English that she could barely decipher. She knew that the court was adjourned from the banging on the table, the people dispersing, and the chains placed back on her neck. You do not have anyone to, to, to talk for you, to speak for you, to save you, apart from Jesus. But whenever I could go to, to court, I would, I would meditate in my heart. Mm. I would wow. say that you are the Lord, my Lord, you are the judge of judges. Mm. I do not trust in any judges of the world, but you know what happened and you know how you are going to take me through. Claire still didn't know the verdict until she returned to the prison and saw the other inmates crying. Why are you crying? She asked. So they say that uh, we are crying because of you three who were there. They are making signs. They are saying, Shoma, 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 meaning you, you and you. They are showing us the sign of being hanged by rope. And they told us that 30 days you are going to be hanged. stunned by how Claire responds. People were crying, they come around us, they cried, they cried, they wept bitterly uh, that we are going to die. But I couldn't cry with them because I had a special one, mm. Jesus. So I, I just said, ah, they, they are lying, they cannot hang us, they cannot hang us because they are not the ones who created us. 
And then she went to her own cell, got on her knees, and wept bitterly before God. I said, Lord, remember, he is there. honest Claire is with God. I think Claire shows so clearly what it means to lament, to cry out to God in agony, while still trusting him to provide. There's a rawness here, an honesty, and a closeness born out of grief. Claire is actually eager to give God her questions. And then she ends with this prayer. How will these Egyptians know your power if you do not show them here in Egypt? I'm not sure if you caught that because the audio wasn't great. But here's what she said. How will these Egyptians know your power if you do not show them here in Egypt? That's such a powerful prayer. That night, Claire went to bed knowing that the next 30 days might be her last. In every episode of Two Coins, we want to situate the stories we tell in a broader context. We're not experts by any means, but we want to join you all in learning about global problems. So before we finish Claire's story, Christy and I are going to take a step back and provide some context about human trafficking. Welcome to this week's Crash Course. Chris, I did some research and I learned that there's actually a difference between human trafficking and modern day slavery. Really? That's really interesting because in my mind, the two are actually pretty intertwined. Yeah, I actually thought that as well, that they were kind of the same thing. But the United Nations explains that human trafficking is more of the transportation part. So the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons. That's usually to bring people into slavery, whereas the modern day slavery is the forced labor part. Okay, so it seems like human trafficking and modern slavery are interconnected and that human trafficking is more of a pathway to get to modern slavery. Does that sound correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, And it's interesting because organizations need to address these issues in different ways. So when Love Justice is looking to intercept traffickers or people being trafficked, they're often going to bus stops or airports. But when organizations are looking to end slavery, they may go into brothels or other areas that are similar to that. So it actually looks quite different when it's on the ground is what you're saying. Yeah, quite, quite different. Okay, interesting. And later in the episode, we're actually going to hear from the Love Justice Transit Monitors at a bus stop, Machacos County bus stop, and find out about their day-to-day work. So that's going to be real interesting. I'm excited for that. What's the scope of this problem? How many people today live as slaves and how many are trafficked? Yeah, Chris. So today there are somewhere between 27 million and 40 million people who are enslaved. Wow. Yeah, that's massive. And as far as trafficking goes, there's somewhere between 600,000 and 800,000 people who are trafficked across international borders every single year. So why the difference between these two numbers? Like, why is it between 27 million and 40 million people? Why don't we have a more precise number? It's really hard to pinpoint the number of people that are actually enslaved today because this is a really hidden issue. And we see this when Claire's traffickers um, keep her passport from her for a very long time. They rush her to the airport before anyone can ask any questions, and then they collude with the management at the hotel. 
Right. So it sounds like one of the defining features of modern slavery, as opposed to historical slavery, is really its hidden nature. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Chris. And I think that's one of the reasons this is so hard to fight nowadays. We can't see where it's happening. Yeah. And when I think of slavery, I often just think of historical American slavery, right? But at least just hearing from you, it sounds like the realities of modern slavery are so much less overt, though they can often be just as cruel. So I did some research too and found out that 71% actually of forced labor victims are women and girls. And one in four victims of modern slavery are children. Wow. Yeah. Children are really the most vulnerable people of our society. So it really saddens me to hear that they're subject to human trafficking, modern slavery in such a pervasive way. Mm -hmm. In the last decade or so, human trafficking has become a hot topic for many people. And because of that, there's actually been a movement to end it. So it's the end it movement. Hmm. So the movement is credited with producing the political support necessary to pass the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act, which President Obama signed in 2016. At the time when the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act was signed, modern slavery was the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. According to International Justice Mission, human trafficking continues to generate $150 billion annually. $150 billion, that is a huge number. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, just hearing you talk and thinking about all this, I think it's really interesting to see how Claire's story really illuminates some of these differences, right? Because we can see in her story the distinction between human trafficking and modern slavery. Claire's story is one of a woman who is trafficked. We hear her say, I didn't know that at the time I was a slave. And when she said that, she was actually en route to becoming a slave. But she was arrested for possession of drugs before even making it to her final destination. And so this really shows why the work of love justice is so crucial, so important, because they focus on intercepting victims of human trafficking and rescuing them before they're ever enslaved. Mm -hmm. Claire called the Ugandan embassy in the hopes that they could do something. I called the embassy. I asked them, have you heard the news about us? They said, which news? I said that we have been sentenced by hanging within 30 days. They said, you're calling that news. This thing has always been there. Maybe it's now announced officially because in this country, you, you can't reason with them when you've been found guilty in possession of drugs. We have tried, but there is nothing we can do. As the 30 days progressed, Claire saw her story all over TV screens and headlined in newspapers. I'd put an altar of prayer in the prison. We used it to go out every evening. We used to go and hold hands and pray. One day, the prison officials came and gave her and the other prisoners a choice. Convert to Islam and receive life imprisonment, or remain a follower of Jesus and be killed by hanging. The other prisoners converted and were given favors from the head of the prison because they were Muslim. But for Claire, the right path was clear. She told them, Muhammad, I do not know. I only Jesus Christ because he's my savior, my personal savior, who died for me. So I know that even if I do not die today. See, one day I will die. What will it cost me to deny Christ today? 
and and die of fever tomorrow when I've denied him. Then something miraculous happened. When the day of her execution came, no one came to kill her. Instead, Claire remained in prison for over five years. At that time, I used to have bad dreams of um, they, are, they have covered my face. They are taking me like to somewhere where they kill, where they kill people. But even in prison, she preached the gospel. She preached to the people who came to worship in the nearby mosque, and she taught worship songs with her fellow prisoners. She would also pray for other prisoners, many of whom were actually set free. I would pray for people and they go. And people would ask me, but why don't you pray for yourself and go? Because whoever you pray for, they go. But I would tell them, my time has not yet come. When it comes, I'll go. It was in her fifth year in prison, on Good Friday, that Claire was fasting and praying. That Monday, she knew the officials are planning to move her to a different prison. And so she prayed. Enough is enough. I have had it, Lord. If it was for someone you wanted to save from this prison, you have done it. I'm struck by the audacity of this prayer. Claire prays with such boldness and conviction. It reminds me of the biblical prophet Elijah in the book of Kings, who made a simple prayer to God to send fire down from heaven. And just like that day, when the fire of God immediately consumed the altar, God heard Claire's prayer. On that Easter Sunday, on the eve of the transfer, they called me and told me, you are free. On Easter Sunday. Wow. So naturally, at first, Claire thought it was a mistake since no one else was being released. Then she saw people from other cells running towards her and saying farewell, dancing around her. It's a mistake and she has done a mistake. They said, no, it's you, it's you, you are free. This was a testimony to God's power, and the other prisoners knew it. Jesus Christ was a stranger in their land, but they could see the power that he was performing, and they could really say, why isn't he doing it on you? And now, because I used to tell them that my time has not come, when it came, they really knew that, yeah, that God is a true God. Claire went to the embassy, got plane tickets, and after five long years, flew home. Today, she tells her story first because she wants to encourage others to trust God through the waters and through the fire. Her story, she says, is a testament to the truth that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Today, Claire works with Love Justice as a transit monitor. A Love Justice transit monitor is someone who goes to border points and bus terminals ask travelers questions in order to intercept trafficking victims. Claire seeks out travelers who are vulnerable, mostly women and children, and tries to talk with them to find out if they're in danger of being trafficked. Claire and other workers will provide these people with things to eat. Sometimes, they'll help them get back to their families, or if they seem especially vulnerable, they'll help them find a safe house nearby. Claire can spot the signs of people who are trafficked, like people crying and foreigners who don't know the language, because she was once a victim. That, she says, is what motivates her to try and protect others through love justice. If there was love justice at that time, maybe I wouldn't have got uh, this problem. We've all had those conversations late at night, or I guess early in the morning, in our dorm rooms or in the common room, where we talk about anything and everything. 
This segment is inspired by those conversations. Welcome to 3AM Theology. So we just listened to this amazing story about Claire, but I think it sparks a lot of questions. And one of those questions is, why would God allow his daughter to go through such a dehumanizing experience? Yeah. I've been reading Job recently, and one thing that that kind of reminds me of is Job's friends often say, oh, well, if you just believed in God, this wouldn't happen to you. You're not a true believer. You did it to yourself. And I really don't think that that is the reason for the pain that Claire is going through. Yeah. I wanted to introduce myself real quick. This is Brian. Hello, I'm Brian. He founded Simple Charity. He's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) He just graduated from Duke last December, and he lives pretty close off campus in the Duke Christian Study Center. We'll be walking around campus and see Brian either at the library or at our dining hall. And it it kind of brightens up my day to see him sitting there. Um, Thanks, Christy. Yeah, it's a good time. But but we digress. Let us, Brian, I'd love to hear your perspective on this too. Claire never holds it against God that she is in the situation that she's in. Yeah. And it's really this remarkable thing to me because I think I'm far more quick to look at God and shake my fist when things don't go my way. But Claire is literally being trafficked, (laughs) sentenced to death, imprisoned. And her relationship with her father in heaven is so thick and real that her immediate response to any trial was prayer. Honest, heartfelt, lamenting prayer, but not turning her back on God. For those of our listeners kind of familiar with even a little bit of philosophy and theology, you know, we're really talking about the problem of evil. How can a God be all powerful and all good and evil exists in the world? That's a big conversation to have. But to me, there's almost these two different problems. One is when the evil is against me. Yeah. And like Claire's response to the evil against her is just this incredible faith. It's totally challenging to me. But then the other that's really hard is evil against other people. Do you all see any way that Claire responds to evil against other people in the world as a Christian? Claire is able to really tie those two questions together. Yeah. With the yeah. way that she starts um, working with love justice. And I think part of experiencing that evil and knowing that there are a great number of trafficked people who don't know Christ yep. may have encouraged Claire of the importance of sharing her faith with others. I think you're totally yeah. right because she actually did that in the prison, right? Yeah. I mean, God used this incredibly evil circumstances to bring her to this rich opportunity to share the gospel. Yeah. 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 I, I think the story of Christ is actually such a cool example of God turning evil to good too. Mm. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Chris, I mean, it's the greatest example of that ever. Yeah. There's this Lecrae line. <laughs> I love Lecrae. Let's just, you see, you I love Lecrae. You do like Lecrae. Okay, so that was a test. You can continue making this podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, oh, was it Lecrae? Was it KB? <laughs> but he says, why do the good die? That only happened once. Yeah, it's actually KB. Okay. And, mm. you know, I am not a good person. Fundamental to my belief in Christianity is this belief that everyone has done the wrong thing and turned away from their creator God. 
but everyone except for Jesus. And so here's this person who defines what it means to be a good human being. Mm-hmm. There's never been a greater case of an innocent person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Who was who murdered. And yet the Lord uses that as this pivot point in redemptive history so that anyone who believes in Jesus can be entirely washed clean. You know, John Piper says things like this. God is using the greatest evil that has been done to do the greatest good. Oh, yeah. And Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who's like us in every way. Hmm. And so I love that, that, that we can turn to him with confidence and, and know that he, he wept, he was hungry, he was tired, he went through a painful death. That there's no suffering on this world that we mm. can experience that is yeah. foreign to him. Yeah. Christ knew creation is good and he knows mm. what creation is without mm. sin, but he also knows what sin is. He can see that evil and that sin greater than we can because we've experienced a world yeah, always that has point. sin and evil. So for him, when he sees the goodness in creation and he sees the evil in creation, that's more painful for him than oh, it is wow. for anyone else. Yeah, for sure. I remember actually a personal experience where I actually had this terrible eye injury. My contact lens had had dried up and had torn my cornea, part of it. So I was basically lying in bed, more or less blind for a week. Oh, gosh. And obviously, eventually it worked out. Otherwise, I wouldn't be reading this. <laughs> but I remember a specific moment, actually. I was lying on my bed in my apartment, and my mom was sitting there on the edge of the bed, and she was reading this passage from second Corinthians four sixteen, And obviously I couldn't see her because I was pretty much blind. So I was just listening and I want to just read what she read. So she said, so we do not lose heart though. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wow. Yes, Chris. I remember even going through that as my mom was reading that. Actually, she paused and I asked her like, mom, why'd you pause? But she was actually crying and I couldn't see that. But it was just a really kind of surreal moment because I think there is a lot of grief as you go through those things. Like I didn't know if I would recover my sight in that eye. But in that time in that, that week or so that I had that experience, I really felt the sense of peace and closeness with God. And it was a sense of peace and closeness that I hadn't really felt before. And I think God is using that in my life to force me to depend on him and recognize that, you know, when something that you take for granted, like your sight is stripped away, mm-hmm. that God is still present with you. And that might be the moment where you experience God to the deepest extent. Yeah. Yeah. Claire's Heart for the Vulnerable is also what fuels Love Justice's broader effort throughout many countries in Africa to save human lives from trafficking. Now, in our final section of the episode, we'll get to hear from Love Justice staff in Kenya about their daily life as transit monitors. Last October, Brian Grasso flew to Kenya and visited one of Love Justice's ministry sites, the Machakos County bus stop in downtown Nairobi. There, he talked to five of the Love Justice staff who, like Claire, work as transit monitors. In a photo Brian shared with me from the trip, one of the monitors, Glenn, has a big smile and wears lightly shaded glasses and a shirt emblazoned with the words, Love People, Fight Injustice. Jimmy, another of the transit monitors, wears a salmon-colored button-down. 
One hot afternoon, Glenn and Jimmy took Brian to the bus station. It was about the size of a football field with a huge crowd of people thronging near the dozen or so buses. It smelled like smoke and gasoline. So, this is actually the station where they, they carry out the, the intercepts. Okay. So, we do transit monitoring here in the morning sessions or in the evening. Okay. So, we just walk around the bus station. Once we spot uh, someone seated or standing for a while, that's when we go to him and start our interview, either here or at the office. As Jimmy explains, he and the other transit monitors walk around the bus station and interview people, usually four people per monitor. The person might be stranded or a bit confused. So then we go near him or her. Then we talk to him or her in a polite manner, ask him or her several questions. Where are you from? Where have you come? Have you come for a job? What kind of a job is it? How sure are you it's a true job? Uh, we ask for employer's number. We call that person to confirm whether it's a job. If it's not, it's not a true job, we plead to the person to just go back home. They'll keep track of the answers in an online form, says Glenn. The way we collect data is we have an IRF form. The form has red flags. The monitors are actually trained for them to look at the red flags. And if it actually bypasses a trash point of 50 points, okay. then it's actually considered an intercept. They actually use it to see if someone is actually a victim, a potential victim or yeah. a potential suspect. Yeah. If the traffic person is an adult, they'll try to help them get back on a bus home. Or if they're underage, they'll try to bring them to a child protection unit. Last year, the transit monitors intercepted a huge number of people. So far, we have actually intercepted over 320. Wow, 322 people were intercepted at one bus stop from January to October. That's a crazy number. The majority of people they've intercepted are women and children, Glenn says. Most of them are from Uganda, and they leave because of a variety of factors. People are actually leaving their own country because they, it's, yeah. it's not safe. Yeah. And uh, the, the others who are actually leaving the country simply because they, they really don't have a job yeah. or something to do. So those are some of the things that right now we are getting to learn the push and the pulls. And there are pull factors. Traffickers will often make deceptive posts online on websites and social media platforms to advertise bonanza opportunities. During the harvest season, there's less traffic, but the summer is the peak time for trafficking. Glenn, Jimmy, and the other monitors usually head to the bus stop in the mornings and in the evenings, times when they are the most travelers. At first, the Love Justice staff faced a lot of opposition. But there before, it was a bit challenging because we were attacked by both physically and verbal attack. Really? Yeah. Some of the opposition came from bus attendants who were involved in the trafficking rings. It also came from police officers who would arrest foreigners who came without documentation, even though those are the very people being trafficked. But now the monitors have been able to cooperate with the police and with Kenya's Department of Criminal Investigation. They're working towards building cases against the human traffickers in order to convict them in court. After showing Brian the bus stop, Glenn and Jimmy gathered together with the rest of the monitors in a small room with tan-colored walls and a blue door. There, the two female transit monitors explain what it's like being a transit monitor as a woman. And, you know, seeing a vulnerable woman out there, I mean, a child, even a woman, you know, for me, being a woman, I know how that feels like since I'm a mother. And seeing that child out there being wanting to be exploited, that 
makes me feel more passion for them and wanting to help them even more. The transit monitors also shared what their motivation is for heading to the bus stop each day. I believe for each and everyone who is here, we are actually doing it out of love. How is it working for Love Justice? Do you enjoy the work? Uh, yes, I, I do. Personally, I enjoy, yeah, actually I enjoy it because we are actually affecting lives and we get opportunities where we get calls uh, from people that they intercepted and they're actually grateful because they didn't know about human trafficking, but at least now that they know about it and it took Love Justice for them to realize about it and also being helped to actually go back home. Mm. Yeah, so it has actually helped a lot of lives. And for me, what more can you do than affect a life? But he adds that working as transit monitors has also had an impact on their own lives. Many of them didn't know how pervasive human trafficking was before experiencing the effects firsthand. But once they started working as transit monitors, they realized just how widespread and deeply embedded human trafficking is. That's why they go out day after day talking to strangers in the hot dust. They're sustained by a vision, a hope that by God's grace, they can bring justice to the lives of people who are deceived. People lost in a foreign land. People like Claire. If people have an opportunity to do something for a life to be changed for the better, then why not do it? If hearing Claire's story was impactful for you, consider donating to Love Justice. Love Justice estimates that a donation as small as $100 can save a life from potential trafficking. An easy way to donate is through our website, simplecharity.org, which we've also linked on our podcast page. And if you loved hearing this podcast, we would love it if you rated us an Apple podcast. It only takes a minute, but it has such a massive impact on bringing Claire's story to more listeners. Before we close, I want to thank the people who made this episode possible. Claire, Glenn and the other transit monitors, the Love Justice organization, Matthew Brake for interviewing Claire, Brian Grasso for talking with the Machacos County Monitors, and Angela Tofik for incredible editing, sound engineering, and illustrating. Finally, thank you to each one of you for listening. I'm Chris. And I'm Christy. That's it for today. Stay tuned for next week's podcast, where we'll hear the stories of two women in Uganda who created a startup to distribute menstrual cups.